reading today is from Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some under your seats, and you can take that as our gift to you. It's on page 905. It says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. that work? That's better. Thank you, Stephanie, for reading our passage for today. And again, as she reiterated, please take that Bible as a gift to you if you don't have one. And I hope you will keep God's Word open with you today. Um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. If you're having trouble finding that, go to your table of contents at the very beginning of your Bible, uh, just like a uh, regular book. And you'll find Matthew, the last third of the, Bi of the Bible. It's the first of four Gospels in the New Testament chapter 11. The big numbers are going to be the chapter numbers. The small numbers will be the verses. Matthew chapter 11. If you are just now joining us, whether in person or online, um, again, my name is Evan Skelton. I am one of the pastors here, and I am so glad to be able to open up God's Word with you today. It is a privilege. We, um, and I say that um, not just because I'm grateful to be in a warm building on a day like today, but because something powerful happens every time God's people gather and they gather to hear his word, and they gather to confess why it is good. Well, you, what we come here for is not because of any personality who's going to be on this stage. We come, for, we come for Christ. We come for the rest that he offers, which is what our passage is about. Today we're going to be continuing a series on disciple-making, on making disciples. That term, disciple, may not uh, be one that you're familiar with, maybe very familiar with it. You may have all sorts of assumptions about what that means, but this series, we're clarifying many of those assumptions, but we're talking really about what our mission is as a church. The task of making disciples actually is what a church exists to do. Our, that means that our church mission, our, the church of Bayless Baptist, or really any church that claims to be um, centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, didn't invent its, invent its mission or come up with, up with it because they had some great brainstorming sessions and they found out what needs could this church meet better than any other institution in town. No, Jesus has actually given us this mission, and that's to make followers of Jesus Christ. And that actually is what holds all Christian churches in common. Um, and uh, it's a mission entrusted to us by Jesus himself, and every church that would claim to promote and protect the gospel has to measure what it does on a Sunday morning and throughout the week by that mission. But as we discovered last week, it perhaps isn't helpful even just to start saying our mission is to make disciples because discipleship is not an end in itself. We don't just make disciples because Jesus told us to, although that would be enough of a reason. We have actually a more central reason why we make disciples and why discipleship in in a sense is actually a temporary task we answered the question last week why make disciples well be, we because jesus deserves worship today our corporate worship service is actually about that about worshiping jesus and it's what disciples the life of a disciple really is is a life of worship and one day we find out at the end of history as we looked at revelation that jesus will uh, bring all of his people into worship. That's where history is heading, as Jesus is surrounded by his people, who he's surrounded by, sur surrounded by his disciples, doing what? Worshiping him forever. 
That's where they discover and find their joy, the purpose of their life, independence upon him for all of eternity. The reason we gather together as his church, and the reason why we make disciples who make more disciples is because we have woken up to the fact that Jesus is the best. He is the brightest. He is the most beautiful thing. And because we want more people to experience what it means to be loved by him. Most importantly, we make disciples because we want Jesus to receive the worship he is due from everyone. We want more people to be worshiping beside us for all of eternity as Jesus deserves and to begin even now. That's why we make disciples. To update a famous uh, John Piper quote, uh, pastor um, and author, disciple making exists because worship does not. Now friends, we can't really understand what a disciple is unless we understand first why we make disciples. We can't understand how to make disciples without understanding why we make disciples. But now we need to turn to this second question. What is a disciple? Many of us may have no idea if I, pushed you, if, I, if I put the question to you, and some of us might fill in the gaps in some rather strange ways. And especially if you would have asked me at various points in my Christian journey, even though I grew up following Jesus, um, I would have had some rather, rather funny notions about discipleship. So we need to find out from Jesus himself, what is a disciple? And we're going to be in Matthew 11, learning from Jesus in one of, his, one of the most comforting teach, teachings, I have to tell you, from all of the Bible, and one of the most important about what it means to actually follow him in verses 28 through 30. We're going to consider this passage in three parts, these three verses in three parts, and believe it or not, that's going to take us through our entire morning, the call of discipleship, the cost of discipleship, and the rest of discipleship, the call of discipleship, the cost of discipleship, and finally, the rest. I want you, if you would, um, again, keep that Bible open and turn with me to verse 28. I want to read it one more time. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The speaker here is Jesus himself, speaking to crowds who have gathered, including his closest disciples. And before we get to the verses themselves, I don't know if you noticed this morning, but um, when you walked in, you likely walked in uh, a, one of three sets of oak doors. Do you see these around here? So these here, those back there, and those there. If you can't see them, you can look around. That's perfectly fine. I don't know if you realized this, but these, do these doors are actually hand-carved. You may never have seen these before. Actually, one of, my, uh, one of the reasons I have a love-hate relationship with these doors is you can't actually see the carvings on these doors unless they are closed. So when the building is closed is often the only time you can see these doors as they are. Um, but the other reason that I uh, have a love-hate relationship with them is, from what I understand, now they weren't put in when I was here as pastor. I've been here for, um, it'll be three years in June. Um, but these doors, from what I understood, uh, cost the church about uh, $60,000 at one point. That was a lot of money in 93. That's an even more uh, staggering amount of money now. I tell you what, I would love to have some of that money back. I would, you know, just go get some curtains from Target and throw those up. But nonetheless, that $60,000, I'm kind of kidding. Kind of. Uh, but also, the, these doors, here's another reason is, from what I understand, when these doors were put in, it was, um, there was actually a great amount of conflict over putting in these doors. And these doors, even though they're a symbol of a lot of really unhealthy things, that the, 
there's something beautiful that's actually inscribed on these doors. The irony is, as I encourage you, as you go today, take a look at these, and they have these beautiful carvings of, of actually an open pair of hands, and they have a pair of Jesus's hands, actually. And underneath, there's a picture of Jesus with his disciples, him carrying a shepherding staff. And inscribed on this is this verse. Come to, ye, to me, all ye who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Ironically, on these doors is one of the most powerful summaries of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Actually, what it means to be a church. A church is made up of those who have come to Jesus. But not only have they come to Jesus, they come to Jesus weary. You know, our passage, again, this verse weary, this, this phrase weary, seems like a strong word, I think, for many of us. Maybe, maybe as Jesus, who's he talking to exactly here? Is this just the really broken and needy people in our lives? The people who can't seem to get their life together and maybe the rest of us are over here, the more put together ones. I mean, you might not feel particularly weary this morning. I know some of you who came in and I could see it on your faces. You are weary. And some of us, we're not really sure that we feel very weary this morning. Are we even in this category? Well, our passage actually uh, uses two words for this weariness that I think helps understand why all of us fit in this category. It speaks of those who labor and those who are heavy laden. Those who labor, and those who are heavy laden. Now, we don't want to differentiate too much between these terms, but I think just pastorally, they're very helpful for me in making sense of how we come to Jesus. And if you would go to those, actually, next slide, past the call of discipleship to the next one. Disciples come weary. Thank you very much. These labor and heavy laden, what it does, get, it gets at our weariness from two different angles, I think. You see, some of us are weary because we are laboring. Well, what does that entirely mean? Well, it means something like striving. We are working hard to do what? To make something of our lives, to make our lives better, a bit more comfortable, a bit more under my control. We are laboring for a, a good life, a better life that won't be as unpredictable or as boring or won't hurt as bad as the life I currently have. We find ourselves daydreaming, if you're like me, if only I could have a better job. Okay, I don't dream, daydream that. I love being your pastor. Well, some days I do. But nonetheless, the, uh, if only I could find myself a spouse. If only I could lose a bit more weight. If only I could make it. Then I would finally be content. I'd finally be happy. I'd finally have arrived. But then we never really get there, do we? It turns out the grass is almost never greener on the other side of the fence. And even the things we end up gaining, many of us are just, to be honest, afraid to enjoy them. We keep waiting for the bottom to fall out of our lives, the sky to fall in, especially as we get older. After all, who knows, maybe this is going to be taken from me too, especially for those who have lost a lot. There's so much pressure to make something from our lives. And some of us, some of us have been able to do so, to be honest. You're at a good point, you're at a high point, you've achieved some of your goals, you're pulling your load along, and you're looking back and looking down at those you have left behind in the dust, those who gave up before you did. You may be feeling a sense of pride at how well you have striven, but there, is a, there are moments, I think for all of us, when that load, if we're honest, just it feels more than we can bear. The thing is, we're too afraid to consider, too, what might happen if I stopped working? 
If I stopped laboring, is this actually worth it? We labor and we labor, and if we're honest, we're weary. Some of us are weary because we're laboring, and some of us are weary because we are heavy laden. We're weary because of the burdens, not so much that we put on ourselves, but the burdens that have been put on us. It could be your peers, your work, your spouse. Many of us still to this day, even those who are far into our lives, hear our parents' voice at the back of our heads. And everything we do, we're, we're hearing comments that they made, expectations they had, fears that we're letting them down, that we're not, we're not living the kind of life that they hoped that they would, trying to live up to their expectations. And then there is social media. I don't know of a machine better at making us feel worse about ourselves. In so many ways, it has become an engine of self-justification and judgmentalism. Adding expectation after expectation to us, like one more brick after a brick into the backpack of our souls. Of course, everyone has work that they have to do. Everyone has obligations they have to meet, and that they fall on us. Our kids need parents, active ones. Others will be really effective, affected by, us, by some of us if we don't meet that deadline. You have homework that no one else can do for you, or you definitely shouldn't ask others to do. It's really about the kind of work, not so much that we are doing work and that we have tasks in front of us. It's, it's, and I'm, I'm dependent upon Tim Keller for helping me understand and see so much of what God's counsel has to say about this, but there's really a work underneath our work. Keller calls this an eternal murmur of self-reproach. The eternal murmur of self-reproach. This ongoing internal conversation we may not even be aware of. This reality that many of us are never sure we're actually good enough. That we're enough for others. Even as our culture tells us to believe that you are enough. To believe in yourself. To believe that you simply are. It gives us even more reasons every day why we aren't. I don't, know, I don't care how many times you tell yourself in the mirror, I am enough. Do you really believe it? I mean, maybe the reason we have to tell ourselves so often is because it doesn't work. What regrets this morning are you carrying? What expectations are you still trying to live up to? What comments still loom large over your soul? Who are you trying to prove wrong in your life? Some of our burdens we have placed on ourselves and some of these burdens have been put there by others, but all of us come burdened. And those burdens are wearing us out. Jesus is calling us to be honest. When he calls out to us, he's calling us to be honest. Let me ask you, friend, are you weary? Vacations can't fix it. Alcohol cannot fix it. Valentine's Day cannot fix it. TV can't fix it. In fact, anyone other than me find that after these things you just feel more tired? Self-help and me time, even good counseling, as much as I'm a proponent of it, can't finally relieve the weariness, the deep soul weariness we feel. Which is why Jesus calls the weary to himself. It's the second thing here is disciples don't just come weary, disciples come to Jesus. Do you notice the wording of verse 28? 
Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Come to me, Jesus says. I wonder if Jesus, when he said these words, would have had his eyes actually on the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes who often followed him along, leaders who had built up an unbearable system of expectations, expectations that actually ended up going way beyond the law of God that had been given to them. Now, these leaders, ironically, did not set out to be legalists. They set out to be caretakers, in many ways like pastors, trying to apply the word of God to new life situations. But for the average person, these expectations, these heavy burdens, were unbearable. And these expectations, more importantly, drove a wide wedge between the super-religious, those who were convinced or had convinced others that were more worthy of God's love, and then the average Joe or Jane, nice Jewish names, I know, uh, who were just not enough. That they didn't earn, they didn't know God's love, they couldn't, they couldn't come close to attaining it, if that's what it looked like. And Jesus puts it this way later in the book of Matthew, speaking of these teachers, warning them. Matthew 23, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. And lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. What a cutting condemnation. I mean, seriously, let's be honest for a second. We are not only carrying these kind of hard-to-bear burdens that Jesus says these Pharisees and scribes have placed on others' shoulders— We tie them on others, don't we? Human beings are really good at placing unbearable expectations on one another, often without lifting a finger to help. Jesus, it turns out, though, could not be any more different than this. When Jesus says, come to me, here is what he is saying. He's saying, you won't find what you need in another ritual or philosophy or formula for success. You won't find it in a program, a political party, or even a recovery group. You won't find it at the bottom of a bottle, in a self-help book, or in another one-night stand. You won't find it in any other figure, influencer, or religious guru. If what you want is more regulations, more unattainable, unbearable standards to attain, go somewhere else, to someone else. But if you want rest, Jesus says, come to me. It's a pretty audacious statement. But this is what Christian disciples actually have in common. They come weary to Christ, and they come to Jesus. But this leads to, not just from the call of discipleship, to the cost of discipleship. Because I I know in many ways we could end with that verse, and I could give you a big old pat on your back and send you on your way, and many of you wish you would. But nonetheless, if we did, I fear we might get the wrong idea, actually, of the kind of rest that Jesus is promising. After all, we might think Jesus is saying something like, the expectations are off. Stop being so hard on yourself. I mean, everybody's human. Take a nap. Forget the haters and learn to love that man in the mirror. But this doesn't turn out to be what Jesus is saying at all. In fact, I think what he is saying sounds, it can sound absolutely ridiculous in our current cultural context. This deep, soul-level rest that we are looking for 
and Jesus is is promising to us isn't found by learning to love yourself or lowering the bar that you measure yourself by or by vegging out on a Saturday afternoon. This kind of rest, turns out, doesn't even, it's not even a mystical, spiritual experience. According to Jesus, rest is actually found in a certain kind of burden. It's found in a yoke. You might think I'm making this up, but let's look at our passage, verse 29. Right after Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and I'll give you rest, what does he say? Take my yoke upon you. As if this was the means to finding this real soul level rest. Now we need to talk a little bit about what a yoke is because we may not understand that. It's a little bit beyond um, our everyday. And so if we could, I've got a couple pictures. Do I have these pictures there? I don't know if I gave you those. Oh, sad. I must have given you the wrong version of the slides. That's perfectly fine. So I'm just going to describe it. Use your imaginations with me, okay? So nonetheless, when we hear yoke, first of all, we might think egg. That's not what it means, okay? But second... Yoke, we might think of a ox yoke, okay? So you might think of an ox yoke that would hitch two oxen together to plow a field. I realize we don't plow fields very often like this today in the United States, still do throughout the world. You might have seen this wooden device that holds two oxen together that allows them to pull a heavier burden than they could pull themselves one ox next to another. Some might think that that's actually, yeah, that, that is the, the image here, harnessing the power of both. In that case, maybe Jesus is saying that his yoke is better because he carries it with us. Maybe it's like what people mean when they say, God is my co-pilot, or God helps those who help themselves. Maybe the yoke Jesus offers is one where I finally get some help to bear my burdens. But I don't think this is actually what Jesus means at all. In fact, I think he has a different yoke in mind. One that you might, uh, you might have never seen before, perhaps do. It's what's called a human or a shoulder yoke. It's a wooden beam or a, a wooden bracket that a human being would wear on their shoulders, allowing them to carry burdens on both sides, allowing them to carry a weight that they are un- otherwise unable to bear on their own. So instead of two oxen hitching them together, this is actually something a human being would wear. It was a device, again, that would allow them to carry a a weight that would often be too difficult to bear. In other words, rest, according to Jesus, ironically, comes with bearing a burden. A different burden, but a burden nonetheless. I realize this might be very different than some of us have thought about Christianity, particularly when it comes to understanding the idea of God's grace. After all, we would say, isn't God's grace free? And now we're saying that Christianity comes with a burden, it comes with obligations, it comes with constraints, a sense of duty. Friends, I, I want to I say, yes, God's grace and supremely his gift of salvation is something to be received and not earned. I want to be, be clear about that. It was earned not by you. It could never be earned by any of us. The grace that is received means If you're going to understand it, it means that you need to understand that it was earned by the work of Jesus, by his perfect obedience, that the perfect obedience of Jesus that came through through the cross. But I fear we sometimes cheapen then this grace. We reduce this grace to some sort of, excuse it, but fire insurance, or some have called it like a get out of hell free card. We treat this grace as if it 
gives me the kind of assurance that allows me not to have to care about spiritual things anymore, to basically tuck it in the back of my pocket and move on because at least my eternal destiny is taken care of. I can worry about God's stuff when I see him face to face. I'm going to use up the limited years that I have now for my own sake, get back to the obligations that are on my plate. I'm not sure what God has to do with them anyways. This is often how, what we think of grace. Is it something that I've received and moved past, moved beyond, and tucked in my pocket to, to, uh, to circle back when we come to that final day, but this actually ends up cheapening God's grace, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a famous author and um, leader, especially in the church in Germany, he spoke of this cheap grace and saw it seducing his fellow Christians, his fellow church-going Germans. He was a German citizen at a time prior to World War II, watching the Third Reich take power, and he remarked at how passive his fellow Christians were during this time, at a time when active Christians were needed more than ever, a time when Christians were turning a blind eye to the Third Reich, to Hitler, swapping the gospel for nationalism. Not that we see any of that today. Christians and were surrendering to a cheap grace, he said. He wrote in The Cost of Discipleship, a really important book, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. It is a grace without price, grace without cost. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, an intellectual assent. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without the requiring of repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, he says, is the treasure hidden in the field. Using These are illustrations from Jesus himself. Costly grace, again, is a treasure hidden in a field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leave their nets and follow him. Friends, praise God, the free gift of God's grace is a free gift. Supremely, his work in the gospel, this faith, this gift of faith, which this, this free gift costs you nothing. You you couldn't earn it. You cannot work hard enough for it. It comes to you by faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, full stop. God's grace costs you nothing. But in a very important sense, it costs you, will cost you everything. Why? Because we do not simply come to Jesus as Savior. Jesus asked us to come to him as Savior and Lord. This is what Jesus means in taking on his yoke. It means learning from him, as he says. Take my yoke and learn from me. Do you know that this is actually the same word that disciple is, disciple comes from? It's one of the first names of a Christian, rather, unless we would think that there's Christians and then there's the serious Christians, the disciples. Actually, disciple was the first, one of the first names for a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Actually, a learner of Jesus is what it meant. Christian was a later label. 
Nonetheless, this, it means learner. It means someone who uh, is seeking to embody the whole life, the whole convictions, the whole, uh, the, to become like their teacher, following them around to learn how they saw the world, to act as they would act, speak as they would speak. It was less like a professor student and more like a Jedi and Padawan or like uh, a, uh, a teacher, um, uh, a martial arts teacher. What is the name of uh, the a sensei and I don't know what their, their pupil is. A sensei and his pupil. Nonetheless, um, it's looking to embody, to learn a whole way of life. This word disciple and Jesus' disciples, his followers, his learners have taken on a new kind of authority, a new kind, if you will, master who gives them, yes, new constraints and demands. In fact, it says, again, according to Jesus, if you read him seriously, these demands are, in a sense, even greater than the ones we put on ourselves. Jesus demands righteousness from his disciples, holiness even. Jesus reiterates the same demand that God has for every human being. That they treat God as God in all of their words, in all of their decisions, all of their desires, and best laid plans. And even as the gospel removes the penalty for my failures in upholding this, and I have to tell you, there are failures aplenty in my life, it does not remove the expectation. Christ's grace was a costly grace for him to earn, and a costly grace for us to accept. The question is, how in the world would this costly grace bring us rest? And this leads to our third point this morning, the rest of discipleship. Now, Peter, I'm going to steal an illustration that, you, uh, that has been really helpful for, for me, but straight up comes from him. Have you ever used a flathead screwdriver for a Phillips screw? You ever been desperate and you, that was all you had on hand? Or you ever had to try and uh, uh, get at a screw and you had the wrong sized screwdriver, either too large or too small? Have you ever gotten really dis desperate and uh, done like I have used like a dime or like a fingernail to turn this thing? No matter how hard you try, you see the work will be difficult in that case, sometimes impossible. The reason that the work is so difficult, again, often impossible, is is because the tool itself is not fitting. It is not appropriate. It is not the right tool for the task. As you have said, Peter, it is not just difficult. This work is unnecessarily difficult. Unnecessarily difficult. It's using the wrong tool. Friends, as I've already said, it, said it, all of us come weary to God. Okay, So perhaps all of this talk of grace makes you feel that weariness all the more, this costly grace, if we're honest. And yet Jesus speaks of his yoke. He speaks of his burden as being easy, even light. Here's what I think this means. You see, the problem with our work, and that work underneath the work, is not that we have burdens and constraints in our lives. The problem is not that we need to cast off our burdens, or we need a little bit more help in bearing them. It is that we have taken a burden that does not fit. To use Jesus' illustration, we have yoked ourselves to the wrong thing. In other words, all of us have made something or someone all-important in our lives. 
It could be a relationship. It could be money. It could be sex or comfort or some kind of experience or someone else's approval. Sometimes it's a sense of stability or accomplishment, a sense of control. And the thing is, is these things, they aren't just valuable to us. They, we live for them. In a sense, if we live for it, then it, it's actually our master. It's our yoke. It constrain, constrains and guides how we live our life. After all, think about it. To get ahead in your career field, do you have to submit to your boss's demands? To get good grades, don't you have to complete what you have been assigned? To enjoy a healthy marriage, don't you have to refuse up other opportunities for sexual gratification? To enjoy something good, it turns out, you have to constrain yourself. You have to submit yourself to something all the time or someone. Freedom, in a sense, comes not through the absence of constraint, but with the right constraint. The problem is, is that in its most extreme form, these things we have constrained ourselves to become our master. Only these, these masters, they, they ask too much of us. More than that, they, they ask the wrong things from us, and they do not lift a finger to help. The reality is that many of us are never sure that we are enough. And no wonder so many of us fear commitment. The problem, according to Jesus, again, is not that we have burdens and constraints, friends. It is that we need a different burden, a different yoke entirely. Jesus claims that rest is found, ironically, not in the absence of an authority, not in the absence of a master, if you will, but in taking a new kind of master, a new, uh, the right kind of master, someone else to be at the center of my life who will never abuse or mistreat me, but someone who, was, who I was made to serve, someone I was made to put all of my hopes in and who will come through on his promises, someone whose constraints actually free me and whose burden brings rest. In other words, a free life, again, is not a life without constraints. It is a life with the right constraints. And this brings me to a quote that is often attributed to John Bunyan, probably doesn't come from him, the author of Amazing Grace, but still, it's put, it's put really, really well. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Again, as I've already said, the gospel, in a sense, turns up the demand on our life. It bids me not just to run, but to fly. But in, a, in the gospel, it turns out that God also provides what he requires. He provides me righteousness, a righteousness I could not earn, a righteousness I could not work hard enough for, a righteousness that comes solely by his grace and frees me to fly. Not by removing expectations from my life, not by removing the burden, by, but by exchanging that burden, a burden which in a sense lightens my burden, a burden which comes not just with the sense of, of demand, but the power to obey. 
By the means of the gospel, it turns out, the Christians actually have power to walk in the new kind of life we were made for, meant for, a kind of ongoing and, yes, sacrificial dependence upon God, a life which treats God as God, knowing that the greatest work has already been done. And all I do now, I do not do out of furious attempts to try and earn God's love, to make him happy, but out of a glorious gratitude, knowing I already have that love, and I know what that love has cost. Jesus calls us to learn from him, to submit to him as teacher. But as Tony Payne and Colin Marshall put it in their book, Jesus' school is not a school where you pass on merit, or rather it is, it's a school where the pass mark is 100%, but where the final exam is done by the teacher himself. Friends, do you, do you know what the final words of Buddha were? Anyone know? Strive without ceasing. Strive without ceasing. That is what you get, in a nutshell, from every other master. You know what Jesus' last words were? It is finished, friends. Only that news can free a life of obedience. Only that news can actually give power for this new kind of life, to actually treat God as God, as I was intended. In other words, the gospel bids me to fly and gives me wings. This is what Jesus means when he says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It is a fitting burden. It is the right burden. Living for anything else cannot bring you rest. It puts too much pressure in the thing that you think will bring it to you. Inner freedom, inner rest only comes by letting Jesus himself be the center of my life, to be my new master. Still, I know many of us have a hard time thinking of Jesus as our authority. After all, we've had too many authorities fail us before. Too many people who were in charge that set expectations that have only made us more weary. Perhaps these authorities have even used their power to abuse you in the past. But friends, Jesus is not like these masters. In fact, he's not what many in his day expected at all. Notice in verse 29... When Jesus tells us to learn from him, to be his disciples, he does not assert his strength or his authority, although he certainly has it. What does he assert? He asserts his gentleness. He asserts his own humility. In other words, Jesus says, my authority is not like the authority you're used to. I will never use it to domineer you. I am not overbearing and unjust. My authority is always paired with my compassion. I won't use my authority as a weapon against you. When I come to you as Lord, I will receive you, not reject you, and I will make you able to bear what I demand. Even so, my demands will be for your joy. Come to me. Take my yoke. For even as I call you to depend upon me, Jesus says, it is is as if he's saying, it is only because I have first depended upon my Father, humbled myself in obedience, even to the point of death, even death upon a cross. You can trust me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Bonhoeffer goes on, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. 
It is costly because it costs a man his life. It is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is a grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Friend, there is rest for the weary. There is rest for you. And it is found in coming to him. The humble Savior. And how must we come? Well, the verses right before this say, with the humility of a child. I love that illustration. As a dad, perhaps. Because how does a child come? It, it comes helpless. It comes desperate. It comes eager. And that's how we come to Christ, knowing that we are helpless without him, and yet eagerly running into his open arms for help, the only one who can help. Coming to him right now means acknowledging your weariness and your desperation, and that's all you have to offer. Come to him in repentance and faith, and you can have his rest. Yes, the grace he offers is costly. The task will be to do as you did at first, a life of repentance and faith. It will cost you your pride. It will cost you, cost you your self-dependence, even your life. He will now come first in everything you do. But only in taking his yoke can you give up your striving. Only in taking his yoke you can find what you actually need. What is a disciple, friends? Someone, really anyone, because a disciple can come from any background. And that's a comfort to whatever brought you here today. You may not feel like you come with much of credentials or a resume. Again, I'm saying, come with your sense of weariness <laughs> and desperate dependence. If that's all you have to offer, you are very close to receiving rest. Anyone who will come to Jesus for forgiveness and then learn from him knowing his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's even rest. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Lord, we, uh, we come to you as, we're, as those who are weary, including me. <laughs> Lord, I wish I believed so many of these things as strongly as I, I need to. I wish I, had, I lived so much of my life in this kind of, with this eternal murmur of self-reproach, this anxiety, this ceaseless anxiety, this work underneath the work, and I, I come as one who wants rest. I've tasted it and seen it in Christ, and I want to taste it again, and I know many of us here are in the same boat. Some of us, we are uh, weary because we are submitting to the wrong burdens. We're trying to justify ourselves. We're trying to show that we are worth it in the end by submitting to a variety of different things, trying to out to, to prove some people wrong and carrying deep regret. Lord, we need you to wake us up to the reality of our condition, to see it in all of its desperateness. 
that we might finally rest upon you and experience rest. And then we might take a new burden, find a new center to our lives, a new master, someone who can be trusted, whose authority will be used for our joy, who is gentle and lowly in heart, and we come as children. Lord, we pray too for those who are believers here who even now are not living in that kind of obedience. Those who are, their understanding of grace is actually a cheap one. Lord, would we find that as the, clo- the closer we see the gospel, the larger it becomes in our imagination, the bigger the cross itself becomes, the more we will want to live sin, leave sin behind, the more we will want to live for our Savior, not just as our Savior, but as our Lord. Become a church that is bound together by this costly grace, eager to offer it to all who would surrender and trust him. Where else would we go? It's for Christ's sake we pray. Amen.